Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of a one year of service in this small and growing church, Father. We thank you for what you have done. Um, we are here to celebrate it. We're here, Father, to acknowledge that it is by your will and power alone and to your glory alone. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen to use the likes of us to do such an amazing thing, that is to preach your word to the saving of souls and to the sanctifying of your people. Who is worthy of that mission, Father? No one but your Son. But he chooses to work through men and women like us because it blesses us to work side by side with our God and Creator. And, uh, Father, we do it in your power, we do it in your wisdom, but we do it with you. And it is a joy and it is a blessing. Thank you, Father, for that blessing. And we do it, Father, because we know from what you have revealed to us in your word, we know who you are, we know uh, your character, your faithfulness, your love for us. And, uh, Father, that's why we study your word, because that's where we find out these things. This is how we know you. This is how we come to follow you and obey you. And that's our hope tonight, Father, that what we study tonight would just be one more night in a, in a long chain of nights in which we sit at your feet and you move us a step ahead in following you more obediently. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, we are now beginning that two-chapter section in Matthew's Gospel that I told you about last week. This is where Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for the ministry they're going to have without him. And as I explained to you last week, Jesus had been ministering in the Galilee for a while, drawing crowds, as we know, teaching and performing miracles, declaring openly he was the Messiah, offering the kingdom without any preconditions, just if they would receive their king, Israel could have their kingdom, as promised. And then as Matthew told us last week, after doing that ministry for a time in the Galilee, Jesus looks out on the crowds and he sees the people distressed and discouraged like sheep without a shepherd. And what we learned last week was that the religious leaders of Israel had deceived the people into causing them to reject Jesus. That's what's coming here soon in a chapter ahead of us. And as we learn, or will learn, in the climactic moment in chapter 12, it comes to the point where this generation of Israel irrevocably rejects their Messiah. And that moment will set Israel on a disastrous course, and it sets Jesus' earthly ministry on a new direction as well. But even now, as we start chapter 10, still two chapters before we get to that rejection moment, you'll see Jesus now beginning to prepare his disciples for what he knows is coming. In chapters 10 and 11, where we are now, starting in 10, we look at Jesus beginning a preparation process with his disciples. And that preparation process doesn't stop at the end of chapter 11, of course. It continues on after the rejection. In fact, it continues on even after Jesus dies. Uh, because in his resurrection and in the days he spent on earth following the resurrection, he continued to teach these men and prepare them. And then, of course, through the Spirit of God, we see him continuing in that process even to us today. So this is where it begins, and it has continued from there on. So starting today in our study, we look at how Jesus took 12 untrained, ordinary guys, and he begins to prepare these men to assume the leadership positions for the early church for the worldwide movement of the gospel. And that job is as difficult as you can imagine it to be, but it's even harder, I think, than it might have otherwise been, because these guys that Jesus has called have zero appreciation of what's coming. And it's not unfair. I mean, I don't think we would have known it either. They didn't sign up for this job. 
No one's told them what's coming, and they certainly don't have any clue. And if you've ever read the Gospels in the past, and you've noticed how often the disciples seem clueless about what's going on around them, or what Jesus is talking about, half the time they don't, they don't understand what he's saying. Well, it's because they started in their positions with absolutely no appreciation of what was coming. It's, it's, it's a complete non-sequitur to them, because they didn't see it coming. It wasn't how they expected this whole thing to go. They didn't realize Jesus would be rejected. Who's, who's going to reject their own Messiah? That makes no sense. And they did not know the kingdom would not be set up in their day. And they never anticipated Jesus would die, much less on a Roman cross, or that he would have to leave the earth for a while, or that he wouldn't come back for thousands of years. I mean, we see that now. They didn't know that. And even after Jesus died, what we'll see when we get there, months from now, is that they had assumed, at least for a time, those three days he was in the grave, they assumed his movement had died with him. They assumed the whole thing had gone south, and they couldn't understand it. But most of all, these Jewish men could never have appreciated that God was getting ready to start something so fundamentally different than what they had known before, that it would constitute a new movement of God on earth, a shepherding of a worldwide church of men and women who would be largely Gentile and not Jewish. And if you don't think that is a, is a rock-your-world kind of difference, then you need to talk to a Jewish person about how they view the rest of the world. They had no appreciation of these plans, none whatsoever. So try to um, understand these guys from, from where they start. Have some sympathy, I guess, for who they are and, and how Christ has pulled them in at this time. And so it makes no, it's not a surprise to us Then when you see them interacting with Jesus at times along the way, and he's telling them about things to come, and they look at him like he's speaking a foreign language. It's because they can't relate to it. Now, in time, as we know, the power of the Holy Spirit begins to make sense of all of these things, and they begin to come through the process and understand it better. And ironically, we understand it because we read what they wrote after they understood it. So we know they got to the point at some stage, right? But they have no idea where it's taking them right now. But here's the fun part about studying them. We know where they're going, as Jesus did. So it's like we're in on the joke with Jesus. As we watch him begin to prepare these guys, and we see their cluelessness exhibited along the way. It's kind of fun. It's entertaining, I think, to watch how these men respond. Russell Nelson once said that the decision to serve in a mission will shape the spiritual destiny of that missionary. And that is, the desire to serve is a natural outcome of one's preparation for that moment. So if you want a spiritual legacy of serving Christ with your own life, then you have to watch Jesus at work. You have to prepare to understand what he's saying and doing and join him in that work. These men had their experience of that, and we have the same in our own way. Because Christ does all the hard work of preparing us. He comes up with the plan. He makes it all work out. He equips us. He chooses us. He gives us our marching orders. He designs our training curriculum. And we do nothing except respond to him. But we do have to respond to him. That's our part in this development process. We have to engage with him in a training process which has as its end a more effective life of service to his glory. That's what we're supposed to do. We have to acknowledge that he's put a calling on our life in some form. We have to pay attention to his instructions. We have to follow his orders and we have to persevere through the trials that come. And then most of all, you have to make that whole process your priority over whatever else life might bring you over other goals, over what the world says matters, and so on. Because you want to win the prize, Paul says. You want to show yourself a workman worthy of reward. Now, in Matthew's narrative, we're going to see Jesus working these men through all the stages of preparation I just ran through very quickly there. 
beginning with their calling and moving through a series of stages. And we're going to watch as he does that, and we're going to watch as the disciples respond at each of these moments, sometimes very well and sometimes not so well. And the story, as I said, begins with the first step, that is Jesus choosing and commissioning a core group of leaders for the church. And we start in 10, verse 1, with Jesus, it says, summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, I'm stopping there because this is typical Matthew writing. He opens a new section with a summary statement. You remember last week when we closed the last section, we noted that it closed with a statement that matched an earlier statement in chapter 4. That was Matthew giving us mile markers, little indicators to tell us, here's where it starts, here's where it ends. Now he's doing that again. So this is a new section, and he marks it by saying that Jesus summons his twelve, he gives them authority, they go out, they do miraculous things, he sends them out. That's the summary of where we're going. Now we don't have to study it all in this one verse, because as we go further in the text, we're going to see all of these details described. But before we dive any further into this, just notice the most important thing in that verse, twelve. This is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that we are told that there is an elite group, and by elite, I use that term somewhat sarcastically, There's an elite group of 12 men who have been identified from out among all of the disciples who have been following Jesus. In fact, you're going to see later that Jesus establishes three levels of leadership within the groups that follow him. You have first those that we just call generically disciples. That would have been anyone in the crowd who believed in him as Messiah. And from what we can tell, there were hundreds, if not thousands, who would fit in that category. Now, above them, we find 12 that Jesus designates as the early leaders of the church. That's who we're looking at now. And then later we're going to see in the gospel that Jesus singles out another group, three men from within the twelve, who are given an even more intimate relationship with him. And among those divisions, from the crowd to the twelve to the three, you find Jesus giving different levels of authority and different levels of responsibility. For example, all the disciples of Jesus, all the crowd... They all received authority to declare the kingdom. They all had the uh, opportunity to minister in the name of Jesus, to witness to the testimony of the Messiah. But it was another level of authority above that in the 12 that you see Jesus doing here, which added the responsibility and authority to lead, to teach the rest of the church, and to perform miraculous miracles. That's a redundant phrase, but to perform miracles that were not generally available in the church. And then to the three... He's going to give some unique responsibility, very unique responsibility, which we'll cover when we see that. All right, now speaking of the groups, let's look at that first major, major division. That first group, of that subgroup out of the larger community of disciples, the twelve. And Matthew tells us in verse 2, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and, his, and, brother his, sorry, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. All right, Matthew gives us a very brief list here. And then he moves on immediately after this list to talk about the power and the authority that these gentlemen receive. Now, we know more about some of these guys than we do others, and it's going to be helpful to our future study if we get in and learn a little about about each of these guys, especially the top guys. And we'll do that with some opening observations. First, very simple one. These men are chosen. They're chosen by Jesus. 
They didn't sign up. They didn't apply. Jesus didn't put a want ad in the Jerusalem Gazette and then waited to see who showed up. Uh, He didn't even invite them. Do you know that? He never really even asked them when he met them. He told them that they were going to follow him. They said, he said, come and see, follow me, follow me. And they all just responded, yes. But at this point, now he says, oh, by the way, you have a new job. You've been promoted. It wasn't a question of whether they wanted to be a leader. In Luke's gospel, you learn that Jesus selected these men after he spent a whole night in a prayer vigil away from these men. So what we learn out of Luke is that Jesus was appealing to the Father for the wisdom, for the direction he needed to be sure that he was selecting the right guys. So in other words, these men are being selected by God. And in the end, what the Father has decided to do, he doesn't need your input. You know what I'm saying? It's not like you can help him out. It's not like you have... You remember the story of Moses? My favorite example of this is Moses, right? He gets called by God to go free Israel from, from Egypt. And Moses gives three excuses why it can't be me. I can't talk well. Who made your mouth? Well, what if they don't listen to me? I'll make them listen. Well, I, I can't do this alone. Look, there's Aaron. Right? God says, I got it covered. Just, just obey. That's not unique to Moses. His mission was unique, yes. But calling... No, his calling was not unique. That's how God calls every single person into ministry. In the end, that's how ministry gets done. We like to use the word invite a lot in the church. We use it in all kinds of contexts. But a more biblical word for how God moves hearts into ministry would be command or burden, the burden of the Lord. So when God puts a call on someone's life in ministry, and I'm not just talking about, let's be clear about this too, because I think sometimes we imagine this is talking about somebody else instead of us. We're not talking about the missionary who goes to Africa. I mean, they're included in this. But if you think only in those kinds of extreme characterizations, then it's easy as the housewife or the, the, the father who works at the business or the, the child in school to think, well, it doesn't count for me. I, I mean, if I ever become a missionary, this will be a, important to remember. But until then, no, 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 no. Everyone's got a ministry. Everyone serves the Lord somehow. The, words, you know, the word ministry in Greek just means serve. Everybody's got a service to God. And so the question isn't if. The question is, what did he call you to do? When he puts a call on someone's life, it's never expressed in the Bible as an invitation. It is expressed as a command or a burden that cannot be ignored. So here's your choice. You can respond to God's call, and if you do, you are obeying the Lord. You're not accepting his invitation. But if you decline the calling of God, that is, if you decline to serve God in the way and in the place where he has commanded you to do so, you are not exercising your free will or your options. You are disobeying the Lord. You're sinning. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. He didn't create you, put the effort into saving you to let you sit on a log somewhere and do nothing. Right? I mean, I'm, not, I'm being kind of extreme in that, but because we're all doing something, I get it. But you need to be sure you're doing what he's called you to do and self-sacrificially. In Mark 3.14, where this same uh, issue or this same moment is covered, we learn that Jesus elevated these 12 men for two purposes, Mark gives us. The first of the purposes was that they were to accompany Jesus at all times. That was their job. Never leave his side. All the other guys who were in the discipleship group generally, they could come and go. They might be there for a while, leave, go home, come back, whatever. But not these guys. Once these 12 had been designated, they would spend every minute with Jesus every day until Jesus died, until the day he was on the cross. Jesus knew that his rejection was coming, 
And he knew, therefore, that his time on earth was short. So I suppose, I think it's a safe assumption, he wanted to maximize his opportunity with these gentlemen, with these guys, before he had to leave their side. And so he said, every minute you can spend with me is to your advantage. That's what you have to do. And more than just maximizing the amount of his time, I think what he wanted to do in this was maximize the quality of that time. Because there's a certain kind of time you spend with someone who you're discipling that's very didactic if you know what I mean. You, you teach, you explain, you talk about their problems, you, you give them advice, you counsel. Okay, that's all good. That's part of the process, absolutely. And Jesus is doing that here too. But he's doing that generally to all the disciples. What these guys got was an insight on the daily exercising of life that Jesus did. Because they experienced life together for the next year to two years, however long this lasted. And in that process, you get to know somebody in a whole new way. You get to internalize their sensitivities, their priorities, their way of looking at the world. You know, that's a whole different kind of experience when you're with somebody. The closest thing I would compare it to is marriage, really. If you've ever wondered why you didn't know more about your spouse until after you married them, it's because it doesn't work any other way. Not if it's done the right way. You learn a lot after you're married because you're spending a whole lot of time with someone in settings that you never really had the chance to do before that. And that's how Jesus called these guys to live with him. They needed to see how he lived. They needed to see how he treated other people. They needed to see how he prayed. They needed to see how he gave thanks, how he responded to the needy, how he responded to the haughty. That kind of intimate fellowship gave them far more insight into his character and into his approach to ministry than merely hearing his teaching would ever have done. I mean, both are needed here. But these guys got a special extra insight that proved to be the difference for them when they had to lead the church and do what Jesus used to do. I like to compare it to the difference between reading the sheet music for Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or hearing it performed. You, you know, you can kind of get it if you're a musician. You can follow the, the structure of the, of the music, but you certainly can't appreciate it. Not, not the whole of it. So after the night of prayer, Jesus calls his disciples together. And then, and I like this, in front of everyone... He calls out and selects the 12 men and elevates them in front of the whole. And I think that's important to note in the course of this too, that he does this publicly. That is, the larger community of disciples are supposed to recognize that these gentlemen have just been given special authority in the church. He made them, if you will, leaders among equals in the disciples. And I think that's an important moment too, to to note. That is, every organization that wants to function effectively has to have leadership. That's a principle of, of humanity. And the church is really no different in that. And Jesus affirms that in his own activity, that is, in selecting these leaders. From the very beginning of the church, Jesus appointed men to lead the whole for the good of the whole. And they ruled under the authority of Christ. And they had to meet the criteria that God set for those leaders, yes. But they ruled, they were appointed, it was done publicly, and everyone was supposed to respect that role. And they were the leaders among equals. And that's a good way of looking at leadership in the church today, I think. Leaders among equals. That is, those who lead in the church are not more holy. They're not more worthy. uh, They're not more righteous. I know that probably surprises you when you think about, you know, me. But we're not, you're not more, not more righteous. We're not necessarily smarter. No amens. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) We're not stronger. I I do think we tend to look better on average, but that's just probably me. And for the same reason, we are not all-powerful, and we are not without accountability. We're just men and women in our respective roles. We're called to serve God's flock. We're appointed to lead 
according to God's will, according to His Word. And the Bible has a lot to say about leaders and how they're to serve, and I'm not going to get into that. It's not the point of tonight. Um, It's enough to say that leaders have to serve with humility and demonstrate an upright character. They have to be willing to sacrifice. They're not supposed to lord over the people. And likewise, we in the congregation are called to respect those people in their roles, submit to their leadership as an act of obedience to Christ. That's what the Bible says. Just the, the, the writer of Hebrews tells the church in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. But then he t- says why, and I love this because if you just stopped at the obey and submit, it, it kind of makes you feel a little defensive, like, who are you to tell me what to do, right? But then he says, because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account and let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Right? I mean, the point is that good leadership in the church is supposed to make you a better follower of Christ, which has as its outcome a greater reward in heaven. So it's unprofitable to you and I if we are making the job of a leader harder because it's only hurting us in the long run, according to Scripture. And so what Jesus has done now is he's designated 12 men who now have to shepherd a church they don't even know exists, that they don't see coming, uh, through trial and tribulation that they never anticipated, for a group of people, Gentile people, that they would just assume never have anything to do with. You know, Peter's example in Acts tells us that. And he now has to prepare them in a relatively short period of time to take over this worldwide movement. Now, Jesus can do that, but I don't know how anyone else could. By the way, there are four lists of names uh, in the Bible for the apostles. You've got three of the Gospels covering them, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then also the book of Acts gives us the list. And as you might expect, all four lists have exactly the same 12 names. I mean, that shouldn't surprise us. What is interesting, though, is the order of the names differs from list to list. And that slight difference tells us a little bit about what's going on in this group. The higher a name is on the list, the more prominent or the more authority that person had among his peers. Uh, For example, Peter is at the top of every list. And Judas Iscariot is at the bottom of every list. But the second, third, and fourth names in the lists, they move around within them, but they're always the same men. So you always have the same guys in the second, third, and fourth positions collectively, which tells us they they formed a secondary level of authority under Peter. And uh, with that, we get to see what Jesus is doing here. He's beginning to distinguish authority even within the leadership, recognizing that you can't have 12 leaders. You need to have a leader and then 11 other leaders who work with the leader and maybe even a couple of lieutenants within the group to help the leader. And that's what he's setting up here. And he calls these men apostles. Another thing we take for granted, but this is the first time that term is used in the New Testament. First time. And it has an important meaning, and I think we need to understand it. The word in Greek, apostolos, it comes from a Greek verb, apostello, and it just means to send, to send. And so Jesus is kind of coining a new word here off of a Greek word, off a Greek verb. He's taking a Greek verb, verb and making it a noun. And so the best thing we can, the best way to understand the word in its meaning then, apostle, from the Greek word, would be one who is sent. One who is sent. Apostolos. So based on this new name, what we get to understand, of course, is he's going to go send these guys somewhere. These 12 men have to go out in a unique way. They are a select group. They're uniquely empowered. They're going to have a unique commissioning and service to the church. And they're going to have a unique calling in mission. But here's the thing a lot of people don't realize, that there are more than 12 apostles. Did you know that? I mean, we see these guys. One of them's going to die, obviously, and then be replaced. Mattathias will replace him. But even then, there were more than those 12. 
Later in Acts, and also in the epistles, we learn that there were other men who received this same office from Jesus. You have Paul, most obvious example. Barnabas is called an apostle. James, the author of the letter, the brother of Jesus, he's called an apostle. And we probably can assume there were some others. But nevertheless, no matter how many there were in the end, they all received their office the same way. They were personally selected and appointed by Jesus himself. That's how you get to be an apostle. Obviously, you see that here. He's picked these 12, but it also happened to Paul. You know, his own description of how he was saved on the road to Damascus includes Jesus appearing to him and saying, I have a mission for you. It's not going to be easy. Uh, And you notice, think back to that moment, if you know the story in Acts, uh, does Jesus say, hey, Paul, would you like to join my movement? I have a job here. If the pay is awesome, would you like to be an apostle? Paul's moment was unique. His circumstances were unique, yes, but his calling was not unique. That's how they were all called. Guess what? You're an apostle. What's that? I'll explain it. Come on. That's how it worked. We don't have any testimony of Barnabas or James, but we know Scripture says they were apostles, so what we have to assume then is that Jesus met with these men at some point during his earthly ministry. Maybe he appeared to them after his resurrection like he did for Paul. But however it happened, the Bible is clear on this. The position of apostle cannot be assumed It cannot be assigned by anyone in the church to anyone in the church. It only comes because Jesus appears to you and says, you're my apostle. So if you've ever run into some guy or gal that has a business card that says apostle under it, it's a complete joke. You think I'm, I have seen that. I've had someone hand me a card and it says apostle underneath it. Like, where'd you get those cards? That'd be great. I could, I could use that. That's what we do though, right? We like the title, bishop, apostle, evangelist. And we just start throwing the words around. And in this case, you cannot do that. After the first century, it is clear that there is no more credible reporting of Jesus appearing, no more credible reports of Jesus assigning apostles anywhere in the church after the first century, which then leads us to the conclusion that apostles served an important and necessary function in the establishment of that early phase of the church. But once their need was over, their job was done, and they were done. The office had a purpose. Once it was fulfilled, it's over. And you can see how unique it is when you look at some of the record of it in the Scriptures. And we'll do this as we look deeper into the Scripture. But the office of apostle came with some very unique abilities, powers that no one else in the church possessed, powers that are self-evident exceptional powers, things you just can't do, like raising people from the dead on command, like Peter talking to Ananias and Sapphira and saying you're going to fall dead, and they do. Right? That's not a power we want hanging around in the church, by the way. And those powers weren't merely for show, The apostles were given miraculous powers because they were there to validate their claim to have authority to speak for God. The apostles, another thing you may not know, but the apostles were the New Testament prophets. That's how God used these men. All the scripture we have in the New Testament was authored or sourced by apostles. That was the criteria that had to be met if something was going to be included in the New Testament canon. When the men of the early church assembled and decided what is scripture and what is not, that was the test. Did it come from a verified apostle as a source? If it didn't, it's not scripture. They're the prophets of the New Testament. But for the same reason, that's why they needed these miraculous powers. Because if you have have to remember this, that for many decades in the early church, the early church had no written scripture at all except the Old Testament. Right? So think of that. You're starting the church. You're trying to explain what this is about. You're trying to set the doctrine of the new church. There's no Bible, no New Testament for them to consult. So during that early time, the Lord was speaking to his church through these men, through the apostles. 
And believers then could learn the truth about God concerning Christ and the gospel and so on by what the, the apostles said to them. But here's the issue. You've got to know who's real and who's not. You've got to distinguish between the people who truly speak for God and the you know, false teachers that were out at the time trying to deceive the church. How do you know who's to believe? Well, the Lord equipped his true spokesmen, the true apostles, with miraculous powers that could not be counterfeited. And so, when someone would come to the church and claim that they had the authority to speak for God and tell you what doctrine to believe and the like, the church had an easy way to test their claims. That person just had to demonstrate some of the supernatural power that was unique to an apostle, and if they could, it was evidence that they were speaking with the authority of God. But if the person could not do those things, then they were a fraud. They were rejected out of hand. We have a great example of this in one of Paul's letters when he was writing to the church in Corinth. And it's kind of a funny moment if you understand what he's talking about. In 1 Corinthians 4, he's been talking about the fact that there is false teaching that's trying to contradict what he's told the church in a previous visit. And... He gets to the point in his letter in 1 Corinthians 4 where he's challenging the authority of these so-called apostles who were teaching the church falsely in his absence, trying to undermine what he had done there. And he writes this to the, to the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.18, Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but power. Now what he's saying, you read a little between the lines, what he's saying is those arrogant false teachers who were walking around claiming to have apostolic authority and were trying to teach, he says, words are cheap. You know, words are easy. Words are cheap. Uh, But uh, miraculous powers, not so easy. And so Paul says, you may think I'm not coming back, which is why you think you can get away with this, but I'm coming back. Lord willing. And when I come back, he says, I look forward to going toe-to-toe with you, and we'll see who has power. He's referring to the miraculous powers that apostles had. And keep in mind what Peter did to Ananias and Sapphira. My guess is that that would have been on the menu for whoever these false teachers were if they stuck around. Right? We're not talking about, we're not playing around here. This isn't, you know, this isn't just for fun. And I think one of the reasons the church has been so easily deceived with respect to these kinds of displays of power, people who come today claiming that they can do these sorts of things again, or that God has never stopped giving them out. Or that you know, apostolic authority is for anyone to take, and so on and so forth. You know, the reason they can play around with that stuff is we have lowered our understanding, our appreciation for how serious these things were. How God used them. And how unique they were. And you know, a little bit of, of smoke and light and dancing and, and, and whooping and so on. And we think all of a sudden we've seen a miracle. Friends, you have no clue if that's what you think. The Bible's adamant about the fact that these were powers that you could not counterfeit. They had life and death in their hands. They could raise the dead and put the living to dead. And in between, they did many other things, healings and the like. Remember Peter? People would get healed if his shadow touched them. Friends, that's not a common ability in the church. (laughs) That's an apostolic power that told everyone, this guy is important. This guy has God's endorsement. Listen to this guy. And from that point onward, the church went forward with the apostles. But once the canon of Scripture was established, once the Word, as spoken and written through these men, was recorded, then their purpose in establishing the doctrines and the practices of the church had been met. There's only so much revelation God needed to give to His church. Once that had happened, God no longer had a need for this role in the church. In fact, if anything, that role starts to compete with the Word of God. And God's not going to let anything compete with His Word. 
And so then they stopped being appointed. The last apostle we, we know of that lived the longest, as far as we know, is John. He died in the last decade of the first century. With his death came an end to the apostolic age because it had met its purpose. It's no coincidence, by the way, that John wrote the last book in the canon. And he wrote it chronologically. It's the last book to be written chronologically. Once the last apostle wrote the last book, he dies, we're done with apostles. From that point on, we don't have apostles, but we have everything we need. We have all the benefit of their inspired teaching in Scripture. And we have their example as leaders in the church to follow, which is also recorded in Scripture. So that's what we have from these guys. Let's take a look now as we move through the names, and that will be the last thing we do tonight. But let's take a look at each of these guys. And I can't give you a full uh, rundown on each. We don't know a lot about quite a few of them. But there are some men here we do know something about, beginning with Peter. He's the first leader of the church. And now I'm talking to a Protestant group here, right? Protestant tradition, I'm assuming. Most people here are Protestant. Certainly we are now. Uh, But if you come out of a Catholic tradition, or you know anything about Catholicism, of course, the Catholic religion puts a lot of emphasis on Peter as the leader. And what I found to be true is their overemphasis on his leadership is a problem. But the Protestant church tends to do this this knee-jerk reaction and goes to the other extreme and denies Peter had any leadership role in the church, which is patently false. Peter was the leader of the early church. He was, he was honcho numero uno for the church until he, until he had done his part. The thing that we disagree with from the Catholic religion is Scripture never indicates that it was in God's intention that the authority given to Peter would be inherited or passed to anyone else after him. That is not part of biblical teaching. So he had a unique role, and when he died, that unique role died with him. There's no pro- propagation of it in Scripture. Okay, That's the key distinction. So, you know, popes and, and all the rest. It's just Peter. Because you only need Peter. Once you got Peter and the church is established and Scripture is written, this is all you need. You don't need a pope. You don't need a priest. So that's the distinction we have with the Catholic religion. Peter, anyway, first uh, leader. His name, he's, he was such an important guy, he had three names. And they're from three different languages. His name was uh, Shimon. In Hebrew, which we say Simon, but in Hebrew it's a Shimon. In Jesus' day, uh, Jews commonly spoke Aramaic because they brought that language back from the captivity in Babylon and it stayed in their culture for a time. And in Aramaic, his name, his name is Kepha, from which we get Cephas. All right? And then in Greek, his name is Petros, from which we get Peter. But all three of those names... Uh, Shimon, Kepha, and Petros all have the same meaning, rock or stone. So Peter has the name of rock or stone, and he's the guy that Jesus has appointed to be the leader of the apostles, the first leader of the church. So in a sense, you can say his name was prophetic, in the sense that he is a cornerstone of leadership for the early church. Obviously, Jesus is the cornerstone, but Peter's name was intended to emphasize the fact that he had this role that Jesus would appoint. But think about that. What came first, his name or the role? Yeah, his parents named him when he was a baby, right? That clearly reflects the sovereignty of God. Wouldn't you agree? The Lord marked Peter out to be the leader of the church while he was still in diapers. Or whatever they used back then. And truly, even before he was born, right? Even before he was born. And the Lord then had to move the hearts of his parents to assign him that name. But here's the other thing to remember. That does not require that his parents had any clue that God was moving their hearts, right? God moves your heart all the time and you don't know he's doing it. Sometimes you do. Other times you just do what you do, and then later you realize, oh, I can see how God used that. 
right? So God did something in the life of this family to prepare a man for service. Here's another evidence for us that there was no application for Peter. Peter never had a choice. Not in the sense that that God was ever going to let it turn out any other way. And you're going to see in our study of Peter as we go through the gospel that I have another reason I think that he was named Rock because he was a bit of a hard-headed guy. So anyway, we'll move on. Um, he was persecuted by the Jews, uh, you remember, along with, his, uh, along with James. He eventually flees Jerusalem for Antioch. According to church tradition, he's later crucified by Nero in Rome. And, and, and you know, the Catholic religion has created some myths around that. They, they say he's buried there and so on. Um, but that's, that's how Peter's uh, time ends. There's uh, some important moments in Peter's experience with Jesus that we'll come to later, particularly in chapter 16, that explain how God used him to found the church in a very important way, which will be waiting for us when we get there. Second man on the list, Andrew. Uh, he was uh, Peter's brother. The, the Gospel of John tells us that Andrew is the one who actually introduced Peter to Jesus in the first place. In fact, Andrew has the distinction of being the very first man Jesus called to be a disciple. He was the very first disciple of Jesus. He came from Bethesda, and he operated a, a fishing business with Peter, his brother, on the Sea of Galilee. And at the time that Jesus called him, he was living in Capernaum. And in fact, the, uh, the synagogue that he attended in Capernaum is still standing today. If you go to the Gal- Galilee, you can see it. Uh, he's remembered for a couple things. He's remembered for being the guy who suggested the solution to Jesus for how to feed the 5,000. Remember what he suggested? He knows there's a little boy selling... Uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, and he told Jesus, well, we have this. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know how he thought that was going to solve the problem of 5,000, but what was funny is it, it turned out to work. You know? Now, Jesus made, made that happen. But uh, According to church legend, Andrew was said to have traveled to Asia Minor in the Black Sea to evangelize that region. He went as far as Hungary or Russia to the banks of the Oder in, in Poland. In, I love this story. In Greece, he supposedly forced his way through a forest inhabited by wolves and bears and tigers. Oh, my. Right? You just wonder about these stories, right? They say he died a death of a martyr given the choice of either being offered as a sacrifice to the gods or being scourged and crucified And by his own request, he chose to be crucified on a diagonal cross, sort of like Peter did, upside down, so that he wouldn't compete with Christ. And supposedly he's buried in Scotland. Who knows? Third, we have James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle John. Now, James confuses people a lot because there are a lot of Jameses. Uh, And this guy, James, is not the apostle uh, named James, who is Jesus' earthly brother. Um, and he's not, there's another James in the 12, if you look further down the list, okay? So the, the letter you have in Scripture by the, by the name of James was not written by either of the two Jameses who are among the 12. That's the j- brother of Jesus who didn't come to believe until after Jesus died, all right? James's name in Hebrew is Yaakov. Anybody know what that is in English? Jacob. So James is actually Jacob. Uh, the church has historically chosen to refer to the apostles as James strictly out of an effort to avoid confusion with the Old Testament character. But truly, it should be Jacob. That should be his name. Uh, along with Peter and John, uh, James is among this inner circle I talked about. So it's, it's Peter, John, and James form the, the three. And it's these men that Jesus gave really special attention, special preparation for ministry. And James is included in that small group that goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, he's one of... but. On the flip side, he's one of the guys that suggested to Jesus that they call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans because the Samaritans would not let Jesus have a bed for a night. So, not one of their better moments. Another notable thing about James, first apostle to die as a martyr. 
when Herod Agrippa killed him to please the Jews. In fact, James is the, I didn't even know this until I studied this, James is the only apostle whose death is recorded in Scripture. Scripture never says how any other apostle dies. Uh, the Arminian church, Christian church, uh, claims that the place of his death is located in their quarter of the old city of Jerusalem and that his head is buried under an altar in a church there. You'll never know because the Armenian quarter is closed off to visitors, so you can't see. Fourth, we have John. His name means uh, Yahweh is gracious. He's uh, James's younger brother. Those two guys were the sons of thunder, you remember? That's the same John who wrote the fourth gospel, the three epistles, and the book of Revelation. He's a fisherman, just like his brother. He's the youngest of all the apostles. And as a result, he's also the longest living apostle and the only one, according to church tradition, who was not martyred, who died naturally. But that's you're getting into myth when you start talking about how these guys ended their lives because little is really known about that in John's case. Uh, second century church leadership uh, wrote that the Romans tried to boil him in oil. You may have heard that story. That, we don't know that that's true. He was buried, they think, in Ephesus because he ministered there when he left Patmos. The rest of these guys, from them on, it's comprised of guys who have little or no mention in Scripture, apart from this list. We know Philip was the first to evangelize Samaria, which is a very difficult thing for a Jew. Nathaniel, who in this list is called Bartholomew, is the guy that Jesus called while he was sitting under a fig tree. You remember that from John's Gospel, maybe? Thomas, we all know Thomas. How would you like to have your name immortalized because you were doubting Thomas, right? And then we have Matthew. He's the author of this gospel. I love how Matthew treats himself. First of all, he calls himself the tax collector, which is an ignominious title. And he puts himself lower in the list. And you know what? That's evidence to us you can trust his testimony. Because if he had invented the whole account that he wrote, he likely would have put his name a little higher on the list, don't you think? You know, shown a little more, given himself a little more prominence in the group. But as it is, he puts himself near the bottom of the list, which would tell you that he was not one of the more important men within the group. Having said that, he's one of only four who wrote a gospel. Let that be, you know, all you who finish in the bottom of your class, just remember, there's still, still hope for you. Finally, you have the second James, called James the Lesser, and that's actually his name in Mark's Gospel. Here's a guy who got recorded kind of in a cheap way. James the Lesser. Um, and it's because you're distinguishing him from James the Leader. That's why. Uh, he's notable because his mother Mary was the one who, one of the Marys, who attended to the body of Jesus. And Hippolytus, who's an early church father, said that James was stoned by the temple, similar to the other James, the brother of Jesus, if that doesn't confuse you. All right, so let's look at this list as we end here. What do you think about this list of 12? It doesn't mean much to you probably at this point, except perhaps just one observation. These are ordinary guys. There's 12 ordinary guys. You've got a fisherman, you've got a tax collector, you've got sons of ordinary Jewish homes. None of these guys have any formal training in leadership or in ministry even. They're scoffed at by the religious elite. These guys are mocked by their own families. When it comes to serving Jesus, you're going to see they're usually naive. They're often confused. They rarely do what he asks. They're unsure of what the next step is. They give wrong suggestions. They're prone to rash ideas. They're pridefully self-centered. They argue about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And then they have that one case I mentioned where they want to murder a bunch of innocent people uh, with fire from heaven. This is not what I would call an all-star team. You know, if, if this was a kickball game, you would say Jesus selected last every time, right? But you know what these guys are going to do? They're going to lead the worldwide church of Christ. Jesus just selected a bunch of blue-collar, average Jewish boys to change the world. And that should be an encouragement to you, I hope, because some of you are more, you know, have more status than they did. Maybe some of you have less, but it doesn't matter. 
Because when you consider what God could do through these ordinary men, you realize He can do it through anyone, right? There's no limitation in God's eyes. The only thing that holds anyone back from experiencing great things in service to Christ are your own doubts or fears or distractions. That's it. And so as we move ahead in this study, as we look at our business tonight as a church, I I want you to think about how Jesus prepared these guys with your own preparation in mind, your own calling in mind. Don't leave that behind in the study. These guys are nobodies, but they became heroes of the faith. They didn't even know what was happening, and it still happened. So ask yourself, what is the Lord preparing you to do that you don't even know is happening? And you're not qualified to do if someone asks you, and you wouldn't sign up for it if you were asked. How is he going to glorify himself by using ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things? we just got to look around, see what he's doing, join into the work, and then you'll have the answers to your questions as you go. Dear Father, Father, make your call on our life loud and clear. Be persistent when we are hesitant. Show us only what we need to know, Father, to say yes, and not so much that we would hesitate because of what we fear. And Father, when we say yes, encourage our hearts, showing us that you have all the power and wisdom necessary and that you will work through us and all that needs to happen. And Father, I pray that this church could be useful to you, every single member, for your glory in this city and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.